0: When somebody, any kind of human being is put under a ton of stress, it's very sudden and before they even know what's going on, they get a call from a reporter or from even a regulator, it doesn't matter who, they're put in front of a camera. They fumble, right? They might fumble, probably will, unless they're super experienced in speaking to the media in front of tons of cameras and everybody stressing them out, waiting for them to say something. So what does it mean, a control message? I want to bring into this conversation notion called the commander's intent.
1: Welcome to Audience First, a podcast for tech marketers looking to break out of the echo chamber to better understand their audience and turn them into loyal customers. Every week, Danny Wolf has brutally honest conversations with busy tech buyers about what really motivates them, the things they hate that vendors do and what you can do about it. Get access to practical information on how to build authentic relationships with your audience. Listen to and talk with your buyers and apply real customer insights to your strategies and tactics. You owe it to the world to unmute your mic. Are you ready? All right, welcome to another episode of Audience First. I have a very special guest with us today. As always, I'd like to welcome Limor Kissim. Lemore, welcome to the show. Hi, Danny. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Limor, let's get into it. Tell me a little bit about who you are, what do you do,
0: and why the hell do you do it? Okay. So I'm Limor. I'm a mother to a, an active kiddo, and I'm a senior consultant at IBM Security. I do cyber crisis management. I'd say, you know, in the past 13 years in cybersecurity SEAL, it's just been a right of a lifetime. And I do it because I'm extremely passionate about it. It also hits on a lot of my talents that I just love bringing into this and helping, helping people, helping companies that help people, helping vendors, helping governments, militaries, anybody that needs to be better and do better on the cybersecurity side of their operation.
1: What does cyber crisis management mean, essentially?
0: So a cyber crisis, you know, if we look at what kind of cyber-related incidents we can have, we'll probably have a pyramid of some sort. You know, at the bottom, that's going to be your everyday stuff, you know, like users doing stuff they shouldn't be doing or, you know, either little incidents you just monitor, you see it in the the scene, you close it, whatever. You do all those things. Then you go up a bit. Every time you go up a bit in the the pyramid, you'll go go to a worse incident. Then there's going to be one that's like your top incident where your cybersecurity team is going to handle it or your CISO right? But then there comes a point where it becomes a whole of business crisis, meaning the business itself is now at risk. It's built into the media. You know, reporters are calling in. they're talking to the CEO. The CFO just got an extortion letter. Like all these things, it calls in the whole executive team into the uh, the picture. The board is calling and saying, okay, what the hell's going on here? What, what, what are you guys dealing with there? Give us the, the download. Everybody's confused. Everybody's You know, it's chaos. It's a lot of stress. And if a company is not prepared for it, and we've seen this in the media time and time again, even for really big companies, they're not prepared. They're saying things they shouldn't say. They're not informing customers on time. It becomes a a crazy, you know, horror dance there. And that's what we're trying to prevent for organizations. At Cyber Crisis, we speak to those executive teams. We prepare them. And we integrate them into their your CISO, of force leads, you know, from the security side. We integrate to their DR. We integrate to business continuity. We integrate to communications, to finance, to everybody. Everybody has a role. They need to know it. They need a checklist. They need a plan. They need a playbook. All those things is what we do at Cyber Crisis Management. So it's not essentially strictly for the
1: CISO of the organization. It's across the whole C-suite and below. Yeah.
0: Right. So it's it's actually like... If you look at cybersecurity incidents, so you know IR, right? Incident response is CISO down. Cyber crisis is CISO up. So CISO and its peers, the peers on that on that level, and also the board of directors, because nowadays some board members may have personal liability. They need to know for sure how protected the company is, how prepared they are. They need to see proof. They need to see the plan. They need to know it's drilled, and they need to see improvement over time. So if something took, I don't know, five days now, it has to take four days later, kind of thing. You know, they really need to see KPIs. Like, how good are we doing on this? How are we improving on this? And they want to know they're covered, at least to mitigate the risk. So that's why we're, you know, going upwards there. Now,
1: there's a term floating around that I see very frequently, cybersecurity resilience. Is that the same as preparedness
0: I think it's more than preparedness. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's preparedness too. It goes into it. I think, you know, maybe preparedness is the big, you know, a big umbrella term for it as well. I think it's having everything really under control as much as possible. Obviously, you know, there's a limit to the control we can have. You know, for, you know, I just was a speaker for the cost of a data breach report that IBM releases every year. And the total, Of all attacks, were just human error and, you know, and and glitches. Things that we have control over. And so that's why I say, you know, to the extent that we do have control. We want to have that control a little more. If half of the attacks almost are not even caused by anybody malicious or any external party, then we have a lot of control. Like, can we reduce the possibility of an attack by half, right? So, yeah, so maybe preparedness is a great term for it. It's having control, it's having, you know, being prepared, it's having the right controls in place, right? That really fit your environment. And also before throwing a bunch of controls at the, whatever environment one has is looking at how do I engineer this environment better according to the threats that I'm exposed to, or that are most common or prevalent in my industry. Like really being, meeting the adversary with the right weapons, kind of with the right tools. You know, if you're some sort of a government entity or, or a, a weapons manufacturer or whatever they want to call those, you have other threats to worry about than the cyber criminal next door. You're dealing with nation state attackers. You're going to deal with the worst part of them because those are the military grade attackers that are coming from, you know, adversarial nations and so on. That is your biggest worry. That's what you got to prepare for. And you're going to have to really be a lot more, you know, risk averse in that sense. Then somebody selling something right Some somebody's selling something and you know what surprises me time and again is how at the end of the day we'll end up seeing very well-known companies even security companies be caught quite unprepared and you know it amazes me I'm like there's no way there's no way they did it this way they know how things should go they know you know but yeah so it's meeting the adversary with the right tool set it's having your people have the proper awareness and actually doing Awareness campaigns and actually doing role-based education, making sure they have the right training, the preparedness part with like having plans, that side of things. You know, your plans are on point. You have playbooks. You have scenarios. Those are drilled. There's a book. You look at it. It says when it was drilled. You know, every six months or every year, there's a simulation. Something real. You know, like to kind of like live it. Live the security inside the organization. It's no longer, a you know, a thing where you're like, ah, lightning will strike, you know. 83% of companies we talked to said they had more than one breach by now. Uh, not only that, they also roll the cost of the breach to whatever is down the line in the supply chain or directly to the consumer, which is driving costs less market stressor at this point. So cybersecurity is no longer some sort of a, oh, it's nice to have, you know, if anything happens or, you know, they, they pay for a plan. They shelf it, they need it, they'll use it. They never drill it, they never read it, they never looked at it. They need it for the first time when they're in the crisis. And you know what? With enough pressure, a lot of things will crumble. Mm -hmm. And you you never tested it, you never stress tested it. So it's like, you know, you go to your CPR class. You learn CPR, but you never tried it on on the dummy, right? You've never tried it. You don't know what it feels like, how it looks like. You never did a simulated crisis situation. But then when you're like, you know, you see a semi-dead person, now you want to do great. You know, it's it's not going to be, it, it could go well, it could be, mostly won't go well, so,
1: yeah. Given crises that potentially may happen, and given the lack of uh, awareness that does occur within organizations, not not just among cybersecurity vendors, but the whole world, in essence, this this question is, directed towards marketers and salespeople, right? My target audience. What can the marketer and the salesperson do to become more resilient within their company to absorb risk as a as a collective?
0: Well, there are so many, I find nowadays, especially after the pandemic, so many meanings to the word becoming more resilient in the organization. So there is the resilience of a person, right? To kind of withstand everything that's happening that we we have to take care of ourselves, set boundaries. There was just this whole conundrum on Twitter where people are saying, oh, it's toxic to send an email in the middle of the night. No, you know, set your boundaries. You finish work. You don't want to, this is toxic to you, you. Just turn it off. So those kinds of things are important. There's also the resilience of staying in that role because in cybersecurity, things just move so fast. That I found that if marketers and product marketers in in that kind of environment, even PR teams nowadays, if they don't stay super on top of the technicalities of cybersecurity at the high level, right, they're not going to be in the trenches of the scene. But, you know, that their resilience to remain in that role is probably lesser and lesser over time. So to keep learning, to keep staying close to the more technical executives and understanding what's going on. There's also a resilience to risk in terms of, you know, the cybersecurity risk. So making sure they use their knowledge to the benefit of the company and to, as an employee, right, to making sure they do not um, cause the company to encounter some sort of a breach, they're, they don't fall for stuff, things like that. And I think that the power of marketing teams and, and those that work around them, they have a lot of power to come together with the executive team and be an educating force for them, right? Because marketers will stay close to what's going on in the market. And they have a really special view that the other C-suite executives may not have because their focus is different. Of course, they'll have it to a certain extent because they have to stay competitive. But I think this is where the edge can come from marketing to the rest of the business and be educational or support educational efforts, support maybe the C-suite awareness campaigns, things like that. I find that super helpful for the whole entire organization to be able to counter-risk a little better. That's amazing. What can cybersecurity
1: vendors do to reduce these crises that are happening?
0: They should be more prepared. Like I said, goodness, we we see every type of organization and every size that they're not prepared. Now, when we want to see them prepared, but we want to see them also doing the right thing by their customers because, you know, there was just one one of the breaches this year where major customers of a breached organization were super outspoken, like went out with open letters in the public just to say how long they were wronged, right? And how they did, did not respect what the vendor did and how everything went not the right way and so on. Don't do that, Right. Don't don't do these things. You know, you have to report within a certain amount of time. You have to allow victimized organizations to to run their own incident response. You have to allow them to understand what's going on. You can't hide it from them. And also be prepared on the front of like you're going to have to speak to the media and you're going to have to sound like you have everything under control. But also whose best interest you have in mind. So, you know, having that also Planned ahead of time is going to avoid all kinds of blunders later in the media and other places. Because, you know, I always tell our customers everything that happens inside your organization during a crisis is good and dandy. And I'm really happy that you do it super well. But what you're going to be judged on is how it looks in the media. And if you don't control that message and you don't say that the things that you really want to tell your customers and not some, you know, offhand, off the cuff, some stressed out response, like everybody's human, then you're going to end up losing so much money and so much problems are going to come from that response more than anything you're doing under the hood. So so I think that has to really be managed a lot better by a lot of organizations.
1: That's that's a really interesting point. And this is not necessarily off topic, but it, it, it it's an expansion of, it's expansion of the talking points. And I want to dig into that a little bit because it's a Uh, critical element of this conversation. You talked about the controlled message and there's a lot of ambulance chasing going on within the industry. In your opinion, what does a controlled message of a crisis look like to you and how can vendors and PR teams within those vendors and organizations kind of create more meaningful messages that impact the industry positively?
0: Right. So what I mean is that, you know, when somebody, any kind of human being is put under a ton of stress, it's very sudden and before they even know what's going on, they get a call from a reporter or from even a regulator. It doesn't matter who they're put in front of a camera. They fumble, right? They might fumble, probably will, unless they're super experienced and speaking to the media in front of tons of cameras and everybody stressing them out, waiting for them to say something. And I've seen it. I've seen it so many times. and have so many examples. I actually keep record of them because it's important for me to see how things go wrong to help companies not, you know, fix it, do the right the right way. So what does it mean, a control message? I want to bring into this conversation a notion called the commander's intent, right? That means that the company sits together with the CEO, with the CISO, with everybody that manages risk for them, with the comms team, with the PR team, all those important people that shape the message all the time. And I want them to think about, you know, what is the most meaningful thing for us? Let's say the commander's intent here is, let's say, we want to a so We put our customers first. That's the most important thing. There's a company that had a major, break, right? So like, you know, when their head is cool and they're able to think through of like, How do we put our customers first? And they say, okay, here's our message. And so like I'm saying about the company, they said, you know, do right by the customer. We'll pay all costs. That's commander's intent. That allows everybody across the world. It doesn't matter whether the CEO is available or not available is on a flight, is in a meeting. Everybody knows what to do. Do right by the customer. We'll pay all costs, period. That's the stuff I want them to talk about in advance. And decide there. Or if they say, we will not pay a ransom to cyber criminals, period. If somebody's life is at risk, we will pay up to five million dollars. Like that kind of thing. I want them to think about it in advance. And even when the time comes and you know they have to make other decisions, they still have the core understanding of what they decided in advance. And again, if the CFO or whoever is not around, their pre-approvals, pre-authorizations in place already their cons team already has an idea that was approved by everybody, by legal, by all the important people that have to be in the room. Of If a breach was to hit now, I don't have to wait. Within 30 minutes, I have a standing statement. And I'm going to say, A, B, C, I'm going to get the information from this person. And here's their phone number, their email address. Here's their delegate. Here's the other delegate. And I'm going to get that information from them. And then I'm going to put out this statement and it's going to be a good statement that was approved in advance. That's what I mean about controlling the message. I don't want them fumbling in front of cameras or trying to, you know, scramble to understand things and they don't know who to call and they don't know who to go to. This person said that the other person said that I want to have a straight up seed document with all the information from their technical team. It's just organize the chaos because there's chaos. And a lot of times when you look at large companies, that chaos includes bringing in a bunch of consulting companies at the same time. So they'll bring in Mandiant and they'll bring in IBM and they'll bring in CrowdStrike and they bring everybody in because they're freaking out. And this will cause even more chaos. So we talked about how to reduce crisis. Don't do that. <laughs> like bring in a cohesive team and trust them. If if that's the company you have a retainer with, chill out, let them help you go through this instead of making the chaos, like augmenting the chaos. So So that's, you know, that's the kind of thing that I'm talking about, the controlled message here. I love that. That's amazing. Now, you talked about examples that you track,
1: right? Good <laughs> examples, my assumption, yes, and bad examples. Now, I'm not going to pick at that and ask you to share those examples, but it would be nice, right? i If you don't ask, you don't get. So if there are any examples that you think the audience can learn from, right, that would be great to unravel here.
0: Yeah, look. Uh, if I look at very public examples, I'm not revealing anything that's not Googleable within two seconds, or that many of our listeners here haven't heard or seen before. I and mean, so I'm not telling you some big secret here. You look at the response that a huge company like Equifax had, and you're like, "Wow, you could have done better." You know, and, and I'm sure a lot of people wished it went better. That breach is. Currently at about $1.38 billion of costs to Equifax. Yeah, you know, average cost of it out of breach globally is $4.35 million. Average breach in the United States, $9 million. Uh, I mean, a billion plus dollars, and this isn't even over yet. That's nobody wants to go through that. I'm sure Equifax did not want to go through that. And as big as they are, something like that is so impactful that, you know, if it was really prepared in advance and the security, that preparedness and that resilience was in place and controlling the message and also the activities that followed, it would have cost them a lot less money, but it would have cost them a lot less in every other aspect, including of the eventual damage to to customers and people that were whose data was managed there. Another case that keeps haunting is the Uber case. You know, Uber mm-hmm. had a breach. There was an executive decision of the then CEO to hide the breach, to pay the criminals and make them promise they won't expose it. One thing led to another, like, you know, obviously that CEO had to step down. And unfortunately, what keeps leaking into the media is more missteps. Right? For example, hiding information from the regulators, hiding information from the investigators. Like this is just recent, like just uh, this month, last month, I was reading about it. There is one executive is being sued for fraud. Like, it's just ongoing. And this breach has happened a couple of years ago. Right? So those are the kinds of things. It's like, really think about those decisions in advance. What's going to happen if you do that? Will it eventually be found out? Yes. Eventually it will, one way or another. What will happen when it's found out? Are you willing to take that kind of a risk? Are you willing to now have, you know, lost your job? The the CEO known for that, known for that kind of step and all those other things. I mean, I don't think anybody wants that. And I think that preparation and consensus through through the entire C-suite can be helpful. Right, exactly. I love that. Thank you for sharing those those
1: examples. Those will be linked in the episode for anybody who's interested in reading more up on that. So I want to have a little bit of fun now. And this is a regular segment that we have on Audience First. It's called the shit list. And we like to expose the worst experiences you've had from vendors. So with that, what is the worst thing you've experienced from a vendor?
0: Well, I am not on the side of experiencing a ton of stuff from vendors, right? And what I do experience is kind of like other strange things from like surrounding vendors. So a lot of smaller vendors, startups, or any, as soon as a salesperson adds me on LinkedIn, I know where it's going. Now, obviously, they're going to send me a sales pitch, it's going to range from bad to worse. Sometimes it's just like they throw like the whole kit and caboodle at me and like, They don't even realize I work for IBM Security. It's the largest security company in the world. We have every service you're possibly offering. (laughs) So, so, you know, maybe I could tell you the same service because we're probably doing it a lot longer and better. So they don't bother knowing. I hate automated emails where it's very clear that they totally don't look at anything, but they pretend to. I don't like, you know, like there's another trend that I just despise at some point in the year. There comes a thing where they start like mapping the most influential women in security. But then there are certain companies who will try to ride that wave and they start coming at you offering all kinds of, oh, you know, we're considering you for women that the most influential women and and you're going to be advertised here and this and this and that, but it's going to cost you this much money. And it's like, dude, I'm not trying to get your recognition for money. This isn't what I'm here for. If somebody wants to recognize me, like SC Magazine or somebody else that I know is a credible organization that awards women for their work, that is very nice and dandy and I'm happy to partake. But there's no way I'm paying thousands of dollars for you to make me look like something that I'm supposed to to want to look like. So I, I just send emails that like, I'm not paying for recognition. Thank you. But I find that those kinds of things coming from different types of vendors, like this is not a security vendor per se. But it kind of writes into the security realm and and mm. trying to get and I find it's shitty like to go also like after women and say oh you'll be this influential woman in security <laughs> like really I think that you know vendors should do better there in general security vendors I'd say a big pet peeve of mine and this has been becoming less in certain parts of the world but not completely less in others so. Booth babes, right, in conferences, that really, really ticks me off. I hate seeing that. I find it so, you know, on the verge of degrading. Don't do that. Don't dress up women in all kinds of, you know, skimpy clothing to just be booth babes because most of your customers are men because I find that's degrading to men as well. It's like my product is not enough to draw you in, so a booth babe will. That is awful. And and I find I find there's awareness growing. But when I went to like conferences more in the Latin America region and stuff, I see it's still a big thing. And I was very Mm -hmm. like, I was like, please, let's all of us as a community come together. Stop doing that. Yeah, 100 percent. And then, you know, the usual vendors promising weird things. It's like everybody knows you're talking to security people, people who buy products like that and who can approve them. Don't buy the BS, right? We know exactly what it is. A lot of the security executives that buy stuff are technical people who grew into the role from a very technical place. They're pretty jaded by now. <laughs> they know that your product is not going to stop all attacks. It's not going to stop cybercrime. It's not going to be that silver bullet that finishes all their problems in life and insecurity. You know, that XDR is not going to solve every problem on the planet they have. So I find that, you know, to continuously do that is a disconnect, between marketing and the audience. And I find that that really is also a thing where I'll shake my head, you know, walking through conferences and say, Well, we'll it ever stop. <laughs> so.
1: Yeah. Well, what's the alternative then to those poor examples and experiences?
0: I know that it's gonna sound like I'm I'm promoting IBM because I am at IBM, but I don't see IBM doing that. I see IBM. Mm-hmm as one of the vendors, and I'm sure not, not the only one, right? I just don't read a ton of marketing from others unless I'm in a conference or so on. That I don't see that. I see a, a good connection with the market and with our customers. I think we have great leadership on that side. Like the X-Force leadership today is a very well-known hacker and a lot of other well-known hackers that come from the industry who are super connected to the community where we really know, you know, <laughs> what we can do and what we cannot do and we don't allow the marketing to reflect some strange dream that doesn't exist so i like that i find that's the alternative i find the alternative is understanding that you're a partner with that customer that customer you know behind the customer there are human beings you need to partner with you need to help them bring them from point a that they're now to point b where they want to be and you know they have to really like come to the point of seeing you as a trusted advisor not a fake trusted advisor but a true partner for the road ahead and I find that comes through first from the marketing and onwards right so like when when we have stuff that we ungate I find that's helpful because you're allowing security people to really consume content written by their peers from other vendors from other places from their community so you stop trying to fish them with all kinds of you know, dangling here's information you really could use, but we we want your name and whatever, obviously, and also a ton of people just put fake stuff there because they really want the content, so they're just like use disposable emails, whatever, because they could use less headache in their in their inbox. Mm-hmm. So doing that is good. That's part of that alternative, and just generally, you know, like I said before, that is super important for marketers and for the supportive teams, product marketing especially. And I've seen, I've worked for vendors where product marketing doesn't even know what they're talking about or where salespeople contact me on LinkedIn and they have no idea what they're asking me, but they're trying to ask me a question to start a conversation. And you realize they don't know what they're talking about. Like they'll throw every kind of attack at me and say, what's your take? It's like, what are you talking about? And you're like totally confused. So <laughs> so I think that's another part of, of the alternative, like know what you're talking about. When you address someone, look at their role, I mean, People come at me with all kinds of weird stuff. So it's like, please adapt to that. And and that for me as the alternative. It was to really be more attentive, to be more connected with everything, to not overpromise stuff that doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. And that's the basis of credibility and trust at the end of the day.
1: Let's flip it on its head. Now, you you've given IBM as a great example. Are there any other vendors that have done something super great, some tangible example? Like what's the best thing you've experienced from a vendor?
0: I don't know. The first thing that just jumped to my mind is a company in Canada. If I remember, they're called something North Security. I don't remember the exact name or Atlantic Security, Atlantic Security. They did a thing to remove stereotypes from people in the security realm. And they had a campaign called Do We Look Like Hackers, where they invited Mm -hmm. everybody to upload a picture of theirs and put the hashtag Do We Look Like Hackers. And then everybody who did that received a T-shirt that says, do we look like hackers? That was sent everywhere. It didn't matter where in the world they were. They received their T-shirts. And I found that was so nice and so brought people together. And, like, everybody did upload a picture. And I uploaded a picture with my daughter. And it was just wonderful to see the whole diversity that, like, you know, hacker is not that person with the hoodie, and it's not that person that has to have purple hair, and it's not that, you know, the certain dress style. You don't have to be goth, you don't have to be this, that, or the other, which is like some eccentric ways to, to look. And why this touched me very especially is because in my career, I'm the kind of person who would go to a conference and I'd wear a suit, right? And I'd wear high heels. I put my makeup on, I'll do my hair. Like That's the way I like to present myself in the world. And I've had comments from men that I don't look credible because I don't have glasses and a beard, because I don't have this, like, things I could never control, right? Or, you know, I don't look, you know, gothy enough to be in security or things like that. And I'm like, can we stop that? Can the person that's in security just be... Recognize incredible for what they say, for what they know, for their actions, rather than for their looks. So I find that from this company, Atlantic Security was so a wonderful thing that they did, and so helpful. And I wish they'd do it again. I wish they'd do it again. They don't have to send T-shirts, but you know, to kind of keep that awareness of the the true essence of every everybody working in security. I'm happy for companies that do realize those little things, those nuances that you know. Uh, That This is the first thing I remember. Mm -hmm.
1: That's awesome. Well, Limor, we're headed towards the end of the episode. I want to ask you one more question. Is there anything else you want to impart on the audience today? I always have
0: stuff to impart. Let's hear it. I'll tell you. In one time in my career, I went to a different country. I believe I was in Spain or somewhere. And I ended up meeting a reporter. We talked about cybersecurity. We ended up talking a little bit before because we were reading for a colleague. And we ended up just talking between us. I don't know how it happened, but I was really glad. It sparked a real big interest in her. And she decided to transition from being a reporter into cybersecurity. And what I want to impart is that, you know, for everybody listening, you're already probably somewhere in this industry you probably already know a lot. The transition into actually doing stuff in cybersecurity more, you know, on the, on the more technical sides or, or, you know, security management, you probably have a point of view that could be super helpful to organizations. And if you are considering it, I would be, you know, more than happy and more than open to hear from you on LinkedIn, on Twitter, which is where I typically am every day. So you can check me out there and if you need help and if you need connections and if you need resources and if you need plans or you want to talk about something and you need a mentor, whatever it is, please reach out because I'd love to see more people moving into this realm, especially that we just need so many more people all over the world. It doesn't matter where you are in the world, you know, as I've mentored people in India and in the Philippines and everywhere in between. And, you know, I'm happy to heal from anyone, because we just so desperately need more fit people, more women, more diversity, everything you got given to us.
1: That is amazing. And thank you so much. Your profiles will definitely be linked on this episode. So if anybody's interested in reaching out to Limor, you'll be able to find her Twitter handle and LinkedIn profile linked in her episode on audiencefirst.fm. Limor, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining. And obviously, you are welcome to the show anytime. If there's anything else you need from me, you know where to find me. And thank you again for for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Audience First. If you like what you've heard, feel free to follow or subscribe to Audience First on Apple, Spotify or any of your favorite podcast streamers.